Welcome to Equosity, our podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This week, we're beginning a new series of conversations with Sarah Owings. Sarah is on the faculty of the Clicker Expo. When you attend the expo, if you look around the room, you'll often see members of the faculty sitting in on each other's presentations. We're there to learn just as much as the participants are, and we take advantage of any free space in our schedules to attend each other's sessions. So when I gave my talk this year on cues evolve out of the shaping process, Sarah Owings was sitting in the audience. When we talked afterwards, her comments intrigued me. I wanted to know more about what she was doing to understand better where our paths diverged and where they came together and why. So we took advantage of the questions we had about each other's work to record this podcast. Of course, we talked all afternoon, so I'm going to break our conversation up into several episodes. Enjoy. Tara, you're a dog trainer, and we're here we have a podcast about all things equine, and you train dogs. And we're super excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. And I, I used to be a horse person a long time ago. Ah. So I have some experience there. Did you so did can, you know that, Alex? I may have known that. Ah. So you're not completely unfamiliar with our version of four legs and a tail then. Right. Which is good. Good. Excellent. So what we want to talk about, since we're we're both all, actually all three of us, because Dominique joined us at the Washington DC Clicker Expo. Mm-hmm. And what we want to talk about is a program that I gave on cues evolve out of the shaping process. Mm-hmm. And there were things in that that were intriguing to you. So, and whenever someone says, oh, that's interesting, I always want to know more, you know, why, what, 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 what is of interest. So that's where we want to head. But before we get there, I thought it would be good to spend a few minutes just letting people know a little bit more about you. And one of the things that I really think is in a sense, the most intriguing is that you have a, I don't want to say an unusual background because actually lots of people share your background, but it's a, it's not that usual for those of us who are on the expo faculty, but you actually, even though all of us are teaching, you actually were a teacher. So you taught small people. Yes. Uh, Yes. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience gave you as a prep for understanding and utilizing clicker training? Oh, what a what interesting way to start. Um, so yes, uh, 15 years ago, I was a kindergarten teacher. I worked in a progressive education classroom. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, progressive education is notoriously a very open-ended, very non-teacher-directed very messy, very learner-centric universe. Sounds, and, sounds completely different from 
what I experienced as a small person in school. Yes. Where you sat in rows behind yes. your desk. Yes. yes. With the teacher yes. lecturing and guiding you step by step through every yes. micro step. And yes. you're usually corrected for mistakes. And, uh, yes. So this is... And they even told you how to dress and gave you the skirt yep. and their shirt. Yeah, not in our kindergarten because our kids were usually <laughs> covered with mud and paint at all times. And it, it was a delightful, uh, amazing experience. Just I was a very young teacher and I kind of just had basically that environment was completely centered around the concept of brave learning. And... Uh, that's where I first learned this. I had an amazing mentor at that time. And the, the idea was to create an environment that was a safe place for learning. And the kind of learning we wanted was we wanted children to initiate their own learning process. We wanted them to bravely step up and make a mess and bravely make mistakes. And brave. we wanted an environment that set that tone. So even though... In a lot of ways, when I became a clicker trainer, there's a whole sort of, you know, the whole errorless learning and everything gets very refined and perfected. At the same time, that 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 concept of the learner taking the initiative, that learner filling in the the space that you give them, that yes. was completely compatible uh, when I when I got interested in clicker training, and I think that's what was the first hook for me was just the beauty of an inviting animals to be brave learners because uh, I had never seen anything like it. So that's pretty much, the, I think, the first big uh, hook for me as a, an animal lover and an educator uh, when I found clicker training. That's, that's what really drew me in. And, of course, if you'd had a different background, because there are lots of ways that you can clicker train, mm -hmm. and, and you can clicker train with so much structure mm -hmm. that the brave learning, the offering of behavior, in a sense, gets lost. But because of your background, that's one of the things that you saw in it. And, right. that, and that you really grabbed hold of and then enhanced. Yes. Um, and I do have quite a lot of question marks about the super directed clicker trainings you know where there where there are no gaps there it's so polished from start to finish although that's beautiful training in many respects i sometimes i sometimes relish those moments where there is a little pause in the flow and the animal thinks you can see them thinking or problem solving and and i i do like to see that as a part of the training um, i'm not uncomfortable with it if that makes sense it makes total sense, and it, it reminds me of something, early, one of the early experiences that I had with training was learning from Linda Tellington-Jones, who was the founder of team training that many people are familiar with, certainly in the horse world, and also in the dog training as well. And in her ground exercises, the training was very kind, very kind. Linda is the queen of softness but the answers were all provided to the horse so for example there was a groundwork exercise called where you you had the horse move through uh ground poles that were set out and they they called it the labyrinth but it was set out in a series of turns 
but there was only one way that you could turn. You you entered, then you turned to the left, and you made a U-turn to the right. So it was a path that you followed. Mm-hmm. And I reconfigured that a long time ago so that when you entered, first of all, you had lots of different doors you could enter into, mm-hmm. and there were different ways that you could go because sometimes when you're working with balance, turning to the left is not the option it's not the best option. Mm-hmm. It's not a good option. And that that shifting your balance to the right for that individual in that moment is the better choice to make. Mm-hmm. And the training that I was learning, which was about this exploration of balance, is all about discovery. And it's about creating puzzle solvers, eager puzzle solvers. So you learn how to set a puzzle and you learn how to build puzzles so that your learner feels successful and confident, mm-hmm. not because you've spoon-fed the answers, mm-hmm. but because you have set puzzles that were of a difficulty level that your learner could solve. And because they could solve them, they believed they could solve them. So when you set the next puzzle, they had a confidence that I can solve this. So they became brave learners. They became yes. resilient learners. Yes. So I have a question. I love that. I love already. that. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about clean mm-hmm. loops and rhythm of training. Yes. Uh, one of the ways to know that your training is going the right direction is that there's a certain rhythm to it. So when would you know that this pause, this puzzling, puzzle-solving moment is no longer a clean loop? Right. How would you know that? That is the, that is the, that is the most important question, I think, because we, I think in the early days of clicker training, in the name of open-endedness, we did a lot of exercises like 101 things with a box where it was so open that the, there was nothing clean right. and the animal was guessing and frustrated, but people, people often misunderstood the frustration. Should we describe, we should probably describe what that, describe what yeah, that is. Not everyone's going so, to know. So it's an exercise now with a dog. I'd love to hear what it would look like with a horse. I don't know if anyone tried it, but with a dog, it would be uh, you would put a box out on the floor and then you would click for anything the dog does with that box. But you don't click for the same thing twice because the idea was for the animal to generate new behaviors every time. And definitely a lot of people started with that game with beginning learners. And it was very much like handing someone a, an empty notebook and saying, write me a novel, yeah. right? Or, or paint me a Michelangelo right now on the spot, off the top of your head. And it really created a lot of frustrated, some totally shut down learners. Yep. And so the goal of bravery was not, it, it didn't, it didn't work. Or you, you, you develop learners with habits of kind of a frantic offering as just par- again, and all of that is on the cue of what training is. We could talk about that when we get there. Um, so, so I did kind of start that way and I embraced that. And then I started to just see that those were not clean loops. Those were not. So 
the way I like to think of it now, just to roundabout answer the question, is it's very important to get the rhythm going first. That, that means that the learner is understanding the criteria, the learner, but the learner will be pushing your criteria along, right? Because that rhythm pushes the criteria forward. Right. And when you feel that push, right, there's a little bit of momentum, then you'll, you might, I, I think, I love what Kay calls it. She says, ask the learner a question where you might, you might add a pause in that moment and see where the learner pushes. So it would mm-hmm. be done very thoughtfully and mm-hmm. you would choose those moments at times when you've already established the basic premise of the, of the exercise or, or the learner already has the skills in place, right, to offer new behavior or whatever it is. Uh, so that's a really important question. Um, but that's my answer is, is you need the loops first yeah. um, before the, lear- the learner is ready to take those leaps. Um, and you're creating mm-hmm. puzzles that are within the range of your learner. Right. So when you're, when you, those individuals that were starting out with 101 things you could do with the box, mm-hmm. when you have an animal that has a really limited repertoire yes. or a person, and there's nothing, you, you'll see this sometimes in, with people where they'll say, you know, I tried everything. It's usually said more pathetically than that. <laughs> um, but but their idea of trying everything is they tried the two things they could think of that were in repertoire because their training repertoire is very narrow. And so if you gave them, if you gave an individual with a really narrow repertoire box, they're going to run out of ideas really soon. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to be frustrated. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do? Give me Give me some hints. Help me. What do you what do what do you want me to do? I think I'm just going to go away, shut down, right? Bite you, you know, whatever. So we we need to expand the repertoire, and we need to do that so that the behaviors that they're taking forward are behaviors that I want to call them. They're behaviors that are clean. So mm-hmm. I I don't have a dog that barks when he sits, right? You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't particularly enjoy having that <clears throat> around me. I don't have a horse who paws when he's on the mat. The behavior of standing on a mat does not include in its universe pawing. And I've, I've got some very new learners right now in the barn, which are the baby goats. And the older set of twins, I'm just starting to introduce them to basic targeting. Mm-hmm. And their, their first target lesson was a very simple one the target was held it was held out in front of me I monitored the height that I was holding it to see where for these goats what was the ideal height how far out from my body you know all of these things and initially the loop that was not initially completely clean so I made adjustments what do I need to change how far away from the uh, site of the mother can I move? Oh, well, I need to stay near the gate, et cetera, et cetera, until I had a clean loop. And now day by day by day, I can ask for more. I can expand the loop to pose new puzzles. Mm-hmm. And every now and then I need to test to see, 
are you really going to the target mm-hmm. or are you just following my motion? Right. Is the food delivery staying clean? All of these little puzzles that I can set, but I'm building it so that when you start out, your loop may not be entirely clean the first mm-hmm. time you present the behavior. But as you mm-hmm. as you expand, you're not going to move on until that underlying piece is solidly understood. Right. Because otherwise you're just building you're building on on quicksand, really. Right. On thin ice. And a, a sort of a dog example would be, let's say you're teaching go step up on two feet onto a stool, something really simple. Yeah. So you've started out uh, clicking for foot lifts near the stool or maybe leaning their body weight forward toward the stool, but you're not going to click anything like nose targeting the stool or you're not going to, you're, you're not going to try and isolate the, the, the movements to the behavior that behaviors that are going to lead to stepping up onto the stool. Yes. So once you're getting that rhythmically, right, you might start stretching that learner's understanding by tossing your reinforcers farther away from the stool. So now the learner has to go eat it, turn and come back and reorient from a new angle or come in at a different speed. Yes. And sometimes at that point, the learner might just come right around the stool and stand in front of you. And that gives you really good information that really what the learner was processing was a behavior of approaching the trainer rather than the stool. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes in that moment, if the, if you'd had a nice loops going and the learner is pretty savvy at this, that moment when the learner makes that there, it's basically the learner asking the teacher the question, right? Of what is this really about? The learner will come stand in front of you. And if you don't click, sometimes there's that thinking moment that happens right then. And then they'll turn and go to the stool. And that's kind of, and then they get right back onto the loop again. But a novice learner might quit right there. Yes. Right? So that's the difference. But it's just a glorious moment when you, you just know that the best thing to do is just wait quietly, even though your rhythm has stopped for a second. And you just look at that learner and you go, I know that it's going to come. It's going to bubble up somewhere and it's going to happen. And it's such a glorious moment when they get it. And I think that's an important part to not lose in our efforts to have these perfect, errorless, tight, everything tight, tight, tight. You know right, what I mean? Right, um, right. That's the art of it. That's the art. Yeah. That's where, yeah, because it can be hard that moment where you wait. So how did you stumble across clicker training? Ah, well, um, so in addition to being a tr- teacher, while I was being a teacher, uh, I was also always a longtime animal person. So as I mentioned, I was riding horses, all done, you know, traditionally. And uh, we always had dogs, we always had millions of animals, actually. And the dogs I had at that time, I were I was taking to lure reward kind of regular pet manners type classes. I was starting to move away from choke chain training and all of that. This was quite a while ago. And then I got in, I got interested in Emma Parsons book, ah. Click to Calm, because I had a dog with some reactive behaviors towards other dogs. And I read that book. And 
Clicker Expo came to Los Angeles and I knew Emma was going to be there. So I went to Clicker Expo just because of that. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no, <laughs> I, yes. I, and I remember sitting in on a session where I believe it was Joan Orr sitting in a chair, shaping a dog to go through a hoop. Okay, and so this was a long, so long time uh, ago. Yep. Okay. You probably, I mean, you were there. You remember? Um, so it was a demonstration of shaping. Yep. Yeah, I remember those demos. And I think by our. So what? What year are gosh, we about? I, yeah. I haven't. I, so I think those were within maybe the first. I'm going to say somewhere in the first five years of the Clicker Expo. Yes. Which is? Uh, well, the, we we're in our sixteenth year. Yeah, so it was 10-ish years ago, maybe. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and I think by our standards now, we might look back. If I had a video clip of that moment, we might consider it too open-ended, you know, a lot of guessing. And But for my mindset, because I was coming out of a, you know, traditional mindset, and then in, even in the lure reward classes, everything was guided. Yep. Right? So there was no... I had never seen anything like that in my life. And I had been with animals my entire life. The dog in my memory was, I called, I used to call it, uh, he was on fire. He he was completely in, uh, the way my memory was, this dog was just offering behavior and, and he did figure it out. I'm sure he was, I'm sure there was some frustration and stuff too. But I remember just being so amazed that somebody could sit in a chair and never touch the dog or go near the dog or yep. or lure the dog or prompt anything. I came home and I was like, I have to learn this. Yeah. <laughs> like I have, this was exactly, and maybe it was that moment as a progressive educator too, where I was, it, it kind of linked up that moment. And so I just started reading everything I could possibly read. I started scouring the internet. Lucky for me, the, some of the first clicker trainers I ever watched uh, after Clicker Expo, where um, uh, Ceci and Morton, they ah, had videos okay. on. So I got this beautiful example of some of the cleanest training you can ever see. And, and then at a certain point, I, I had just, I had to go to Karen Pryor Academy. I just had to, I was sort of driven uh, to get better at this. So that's kind of the path uh, that I took. And there was no going back. <laughs> and, and somewhere along the way, you stopped teaching little people? Yes, yes. And... I was a teacher for 11 years. And I do, I do miss the time spent with those little people. They were, they were amazing. But I got exhausted with school bureaucracy. And I got exhausted with grownups. And so right, <laughs> right about the time that I graduated from Karen Pryor Academy, I just thought I would try shifting into a professional dog training career. So, and then I did about six or seven years of sort of behavior consulting with, you know, in-home pet owner consulting. So, and that was a rich challenge. And that, that meant I had to deal with a lot more grownups. Yes, <laughs> so. yes. The irony of it all that, you know, you're, that, Part of the reason for leaving. When you resist, always yeah, comes, always back. comes back. <laughs> yes, because dogs somehow they have humans attached to them, and I know. Yeah, and they, most of them are grown-ups. Oh well, but it's completely different, and I I totally get not wanting to deal with the school, the paperwork bureaucracy part of it. 
Yes. Yes. But I do. I do miss the the kids. They. It was a. It was quite in a wonderful classroom. We used to have talk about you know kids that would fake being well, so <laughs> they could come to school. They yeah. didn't want to miss school. That's how I was so proud of our program for that. Um, they. I mean, they just loved being there, and yes. that's exactly what we want from all learners, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of the story. And now you are a speaker at Clicker Expo yourself. Yes. She's on the faculty. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I thank my lucky stars every, every single time I get to go and do this. It's quite an honor. And I do love it. If you were going back into a, a classroom situation, given what you've been learning with Clicker training, mm. what would be different, if anything? Um... That's a wonderful question as well. Uh, I think, believe it or not, I would. There, there is a, um, a a spot in progressive education that I think could be enhanced with cl clean loops. <laughs> oh. Believe it or not, because really, I feel that although our classroom had many aspects that were ideal. For some of the learners, it was so open. It was sort of like 101 things to do with a box. It mm. it was emotionally difficult to navigate in such an open-ended way in some aspects. So um, I think some of our learners, especially some more of this, uh, the special needs type learners, the people that learn differently, yeah. um, people uh, learners that had narrow repertoires or intense sensitivities to things, I think if I could go back, uh, I would bring in the sh more of a shaping structure of, of breaking tasks down into smaller chunks. But even for our uh -huh. animals, it's the same. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. But back then it was, I will say that when I started getting interested in clicker training and tag teach and things like that, and I started to bring those ideas into the classroom, there was quite a lot of resistance from my colleagues. Hmm. Because fortunately, behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis, has a very bad reputation yes. among progressive education circles. So there was a lot of resistance and pushback to that. So it's funny because I've I did some volunteer work with horses and autistic children, and I had the same impression. And when I listen to what people were saying about applied behavior analysis, it was actually they had a completely inaccurate conception of it. So they were against it and they were saying it's too harsh. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? We're not talking about the same thing. And so I was very surprised about this. So I don't know if you were able to understand why there was this resistance. Were there some misconceptions or was it just resistance to change? Um, well, there was definitely some stereotypes about what this whole thing is about. A lot of people perceive it as too mechanistic, too manipulative, mm. you know, mm. just giving little stickers and M&Ms and almost um, demeaning, demeaning right. the learners uh, with rewards. There's a lot of punished by rewards kind of mentality. So I would think of it as a stereotype. It's like a stereotype, like the, mm. the Skinner box and the mind control. Mm. And I mean, even the word stimulus control just makes everyone freak out yeah. that, that's, that Skinner was saying we have no self 
you know, we have no free will. Mm-hmm. And that's not the that's not what he was saying. But it was like misunderstood. And it, there was a huge split in academic circles. I mean, I'm sure Jesus could fill you in on the history of this far more accurately than I can. But I know there was a huge split uh, in academic circles, uh, sort of isolating the applied behavior analysts and kind of ostracizing them because of all this talk. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've heard this many, many, many times, but Mm -hmm. coming from the perspective that I am, I've embraced this work wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. I I find great value in it. So I do a bit of head scratching when people say, oh, Skinner, he's just, he's held back my field by, you know, decades or, uh, you know, we, we don't like Skinner. And I think, wait a minute. Are we are we talking about B.F. Skinner? You know, um, and so so it's interesting to hear this because your perspective is of value. That the impression that they had in the school was that this is the tag teach and so on. This is not something that we want. Right, that it was somehow antithetical to our goals of brave learning or our goals of progressive hmm. education, which would be a child centered program uh, without a lot of adult control and manipulation. A lot of talk about intrinsic reinforcement is that's the most, Mm. you know, we don't want to give them little gold stars, which I actually agree with. I think we should be careful, but I keep bringing it back over and over again to these are the laws of learning. Yes. And whether or not we call it progressive education or the laws of learning are still happening. Behavior is happening. It's getting reinforced or it's not. And that the more we can shine a light on that, the better we're going to be as teachers. And so I, I felt very baffled as well, because for me, it, it was sort of like this liberating way of of actually honoring the learner and by like breaking, yeah. breaking tasks down into these beautiful steps that are achievable and, and thinking in terms of reinforcement instead of punishers, right? Yes. And, and all of these things that were just, for my mind, I kept thinking it was the most beautiful way of getting to the heart of what we really want. Um, and then I was, yeah, when, when you kind of get slapped in the face with this impression that you're just, you're doing this kind of evil mind work. You know, it's funny because you hear that, the manipulative aspect of it. And yet the way I feel is I'm giving back to my learner control over their outcome. That's mm-hmm. how I feel every day. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this. Yeah. I don't feel, I don't feel, well, are we modifying behaviors? Yes, but always, for me anyway, my perspective is always have the animal feel that they have control over their outcome with their behavior. Right, right. It's a win-win situation for both of us that when you first introduce clicker training to your horse, to your dog, to your dolphin, it's like you finally have figured out how to get the human to reach into the treat pouch and give you the goodie or how to toss the ball or the, the tug toy or whatever it is that, uh, whatever activity that you want to engage in, you have finally figured out how to get your human to offer you the opportunity to engage in that, that activity. What could be better than that? That's, that's from the animal's point of view, this is great finally, I've got this human figured out. But certainly that there are, amongst clicker trainers, there are a variety of, I suppose, perspective, because you could be a clicker trainer and not, or use a clicker 
and use the science, but not necessarily engage in a two-way conversation as much as another one. Yes. Someone else could say, well, I'm having a conversation. My animal is constantly cueing me and I am behaving in accordance to, to that. So maybe not everyone. If you're still, if you're still in a, the command base, the strict father frame, that's the George Lakoff framing, then you could be using treats, but yeah. still be framing and structuring your training in, I give a cue, you respond, I reinforce it, I give the next cue, you respond, I reinforce it, but I'm not really allowing my behavior to be adjusted, modified, changed by the response of my learner, that it's a one-way street, not a two-way street. Right, yeah. right. And I think once you start discussing function of behavior and really, really look at function of behavior... Mm-hmm. I feel that opens up the two-way conversation more. Yes. Because all of a sudden, yeah. if the dog wants to greet you and you just say, well, here's a, here's a kibble, mm-hmm. but what he really wants is your attention and, you know, some, some, some time with you. Well, you know, when you start looking at behavior and their function, I think the animal's welfare and what they need becomes more important and more of a two-way conversation. Which brings us rather nicely, doesn't it, to cues and stimulus control and all the different ways in which cues are taught or how we've been taught to teach cues and how we have been taught to think about stimulus control. So, Sarah, do you want to jump in with how you think of stimulus control and how you think of cues and how you teach cues. We are, of course, going to stop here for today. The conversation has come to a perfect place for us to take a break. Next time, we'll pick up here with these questions about cues and stimulus control. In the meantime, I just want to add two quick stories about a couple of things that happened recently. One was a lesson day that I did at a boarding barn near where I live. This lesson day was for a group of people who I've known for 20 odd years. They were among the first cohort of early adopters of clicker training. Some of their horses were in the books and the early DVDs. They really helped me enormously in working out the structure of how we introduce clicker training to horses, how we combine it with the classical dressage to teach balance and how we use it to teach everyday practical skills, basic horse husbandry, and then on into the riding and the performance work. Now, I remember when clicker training first appeared on the scene that one of the many things people said about it was it was just a fad. And when you say something's a fad, that, that makes it really easy to dismiss it. You don't have to worry about this weird thing where we're feeding horses treats and, oh my goodness, you're going to ruin horses by feeding them treats. You, you didn't have to go there. This was just a fad. People were always coming up with crazy new ways to train horses. And this was just one of them. 
know, give it a give it a few weeks and people would see that clicker training was just another one of these weird fads that are always coming on the scene. And, you know, in a few weeks, a few months, it's going to be replaced by the next new crazy thing. Well, I've been clicker training now for over 25 years. So if this is a fad, it's a really long lasting one. And I'm not the only one who is still using it all these years later. So in that first cohort of people who were in my area and had been clients with me, some of them even before I started clicker training, we were they were all clustered in the same general area and some of them even boarded together. So we started to have monthly lesson days. We would meet together as a group and work with each of their horses. Most of them were fairly inexperienced horse owners at that time. So I was helping them train their first horses. And the lesson days ended up spanning a period of several years. And then life began to get in the way. The stable where we met changed hands. People scattered to different barns. I was traveling to give clinics almost every weekend. The lesson days gradually became less frequent. And then they, they stopped altogether. They were fun, but everyone had reached a stage of mastery with their horses. They really didn't need such frequent input. And I was busy giving clinics elsewhere, so the lesson days basically got squeezed out. Well, fast forward 10 years, and sadly, we have lost many of the horses who started out in those early lessons. I had the very great pleasure of watching them when they were young horses. I had the great pleasure of watching their owners develop as horse trainers. I saw them mature together and then they moved on and they had their horses, had a really wonderful time with their horses. And then their horses were you know, in their 20s. Some of them made it into their 30s and we lost them. And now their owners have new horses. And interestingly enough, they're once again boarding together. So it's been a while since they've introduced a horse to clicker training and they were feeling in need of a refresher course. So on a recent weekend, early in April, we had a lesson day. I should add, we had a lesson day in the snow it may have been April, but it was cold and it was actively snowing. We had nine horses and we could have had more, but there are only so many hours in a day, especially when you have to go in every now and then to get warm. And as I was driving home, I was thinking so much for this being a fad that not only did their first horses live most of their adult life in a clicker training world. But now as they're starting with their second horses, they're wanting to continue on and introduce them to clicker training and use that as the central focus of their training. My second story involves the goats. It was time to wean the older set of twins. So on a recent Friday afternoon, 
mom went home with her owner, which meant that she left behind two babies hollering their heads off in their stall. And Thaddeus in particular can bellow. If I was ever tempted to adopt a screaming parrot, his high-pitched baby bellow has completely convinced me that that's not something I want to live with, ever. Anyway, I got some treats, I set some mats out in the aisle, and I opened their stall door. And suddenly, the barn was filled with blissful silence. No more plaintive bellowing for mother. They were focused on this new clicker game. I've been introducing them separately to targeting, and now I was using their targeting skills to teach them about going to separate mats. I wanted each goat to go to its own mat. And what surprised and pleased me was how much this training activity so completely distracted them from the stress of mother not being close by. And when they went back into their stall, and I sat with them for a few minutes, and then when I left them, they settled down really quickly. So the weaning process has been, I don't know what it's been like for them, but for me, it's been a lot less stressful than it would have been if I just had to leave them to holler until they got over it. So again, if this is a fad, it's one I'm going to keep. Happy training, everyone. <laughs>